Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about reading chapter and verse on what I don't believe. I usually resist, or frankly even resent, the idea that beliefs can or should be defined by what they are not. Here I am, though, starting what's probably going to be a two-part focus on religious beliefs with the negative part, what I don't believe. Take two things from that. One, I'm not perfect, and therefore I am not able to consistently practice what I preach. Two, the state of Christianity in America today is actually so shameful that you almost have to share your faith by first distancing yourself from the views the average person expects from mainstream politically active Christianity. I am not a politically active Christian as I define the term. Let's talk a little bit about what that term means, or at least what it means to me. I don't think there's anything wrong with being active in politics. I think it's a very good idea for people who have strongly held values and convictions to share those values and convictions and to work toward influencing a better world, a better community, a better society, all those levels. However, I define politically active Christianity with the initials PAC, the same initials that we use in America to define an entity called political action committees. Now, political action committees are clusters of lobbyists they're essentially lobbying groups. In this case, what they do is they bring together people who share a belief in Christianity, not necessarily the belief in Christianity, with a very specific set of social issues, typically social issues, and even more often, politically conservative social issues. And they use the clout represented by the pooled funds and resources and the common voice to try to influence the legislature the administrative branch, president in some cases, and the courts to bend toward the right side of the political spectrum, for want of a better word, political action committees. And my biggest beef with politically active Christians um, with these PACs is that you tend to find that somewhere in that mix of politics and religion, the religion loses out. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you can, uh, a man will never serve two masters. You'll end up despising one, or at least at the very least in this case, compromising one at the expense of the other. Uh, Jesus specifically referred that to the idea of uh, trying to pursue both wealth and faith at the same time. But in this case, I think it does work for this particular kind of, this particular brand of power politics. I wrote a manifesto more than 10 years ago. It's a poem, what I would describe as a prose poem, and we'll talk a little bit more about the arts and poetry in a further show. But uh, this one I wrote not so much to express any sort of great uh, beauty or um, love, but to actually vent my anger. And in fact, as I've been rereading this to try to get ready to share the poem called Chapter and Verse today, it occurs to me that some of that anger is actually still, still held up. It's still there. So a couple things about poetry. First, I will read it, and I'll read it aloud, and I'll read it uh, kind of the way I intended it for it to be read. That's a luxury that I have as the person who wrote the poem. But the other thing is the visual. So I'm going to take the last couple of stanzas from this poem 
take a picture of them and stick them out on the website at http colon slash slash inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Because I think that as crucial as the poetry reading experience is, sometimes the visual element of a poem is just as important. E. e. Cummings is the obvious example of that. Um, his use or non-use of capitalization and punctuation served a purpose in the way he wrote or transcribed his poetry. And in this case, because the topic that I'm covering is chapter and verse or the misuse and abuse of scripture, um, I think you'll see if you go look at that image kind of why the visual element is a, kind of an important part of this particular, of sharing this particular poem. So here is chapter and verse, written September 24th, 1999. Some people can quote chapter and verse, yet don't understand the central themes. They believe in one way to get there, the right way. It is my way. How you arrive becomes more important than weather. For those who can quote chapter and verse, a phrase from Jeremiah can justify great hatred and violence. Never mind what Jesus said, that what is in your heart matters most. Paul's dictate that we pray without ceasing somehow means that our children must cease praying long enough to publicly pledge allegiance to a God who would call us hypocrites for publicly pledging allegiance. Experts on what the Lord forbids and what the Lord commands have neglected to study the staggering volume of what the Lord allows. Understanding the forgiveness professed by the crucified Christ comes not from looking at thou shalt not in his one hand or at you must in his other. Rather, such an understanding can be found in the expanse of his loving arms between the guidance of those pierced palms. Chapter and verse clearly state the rule of law about eyes, teeth, and lives. Yet, we are unable to construct slogans around God's verdict against Cain. Although God punished some of the sinful with leprosy, Jesus healed those who professed their faith. Now, many of the faithful, in the name of the Lord, oppose finding a cure to heal the lepers in our society. After all, a plague may be God's way of punishing the Sodomites. Of course, there are chapters and verses about forgiveness, too. We should forgive adultery and consorting with prostitutes, as long as the fornication was heterosexually oriented. We should forgive non-profit fundraisers who embezzle money donated from the slim savings of the fixed-income faithful, as if getting rich off a non-profit venture is more acceptable than getting rich off a commercial enterprise. We should forgive those who take the Lord's name in vain by twisting His words into political slogans, provided those slogans do not include heaven forbid, profanity. While we are expected to forgive several select sins, somehow there are some we cannot. Those who would cite chapter and verse, it would seem, can forgive adultery, but not bearing false witness against a neighbor. They can forgive those who place the Lord of politics before God, but cannot accept that Jesus meant more than a single narrow avenue when he directed through me. Is the reach of Christ's arm so limited that only the my way of those who quote chapter and verse leads to his kingdom? At times, they remember passages inexplicably omitted from the biblical canon, like the moment when the shepherd tells the lost sheep it is unwelcome in the flock unless it vows ne'er to stray again, like the third epistle to Corinth, where Paul warns that those who study the letters of Apollos or Peter are doomed to eternal damnation. 
like the epilogue to St. John the Divine's Revelation, where Jesus grants that we will no longer need to turn the other cheek after 2,000 years when we must cast the first of several stones in response to pressing social issues. Once adherence to these new scriptures would have been scorned as heretics. Now, those who cite non-existent chapters and verses take an inquisitional tone toward all critics of their conveniently composed dogma. What do we call those people who do not sift through scriptures seeking justifications? Are they not believers too, even without the bookmarks? It is a fair question, because often enough what these believers know collides with the teachings of those who would quote chapter and verse. These believers understand that we are commanded to love God and each other, that Jesus wants us to forgive infinitely, that heaven rejoices more for sinners who seek the Lord's help, even if they falter along the way, than for those who do not seem to struggle, that there is no such thing as a sin God cannot forgive, that Jesus set an example of seeking congregation with those sinners whom some modern churches self-righteously shun. That God will judge us on how we treat the lowest members of our community, criminals, those who carry the plague, for example. In fact, Jesus said that what we do for the least is what we do for him. He is, we are told, the sick, the prisoner, the homeless. That the Lord is not interested in our public displays of affection, even from an endearing classroom full of children. He prefers a strong public example and eager private confession as a fitting witness to faith. It's disturbing how often these truths come into conflict with the beliefs of those who would quote chapter and verse. The last thing God reveals to us in the canonical Bible is a warning not to petition or delete sections of the word, nor to add any new dogma. You will rarely hear anyone cite that chapter and verse. One possible explanation is that some believers struggle with the Lord's warning because they truly wish for more. Through all the chapters and verses they favor, they wish Jesus had said more, or anything for that matter, about modern matters burning in the hearts of the heretics. In some cases, Jesus simply said too much, making unfortunate uses of must and must not, the Lord did not leave enough room for hatred, intolerance, and violence. A lack of faith evident in modern times is often decried by those who wish to cite chapters and verses never written into Scripture. Their evidence? No posted commandments in the courthouse, mangers at the mayor's office, Bible readings to begin the school day. Where is their faith? They are so certain that the providence of God will be denied if a nativity scene is placed across the street on private property, rather than in front of City Hall. Many of these evangelists warn that God's will cannot be done unless it is done their way. These fears of the faithless will not convert anyone. Believers with true faith know the righteousness of the Lord will reign on either side of the street. This true faith an intuitive knowledge of God, is self-evident without slogans. Believers who know God do not need to cite select chapters and verses, and they do not wish for new verses that Jesus warned us to ignore. The true will of God is written between the lines. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. 
Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. Okay, I refer to the poem chapter and verse as a manifesto on what I don't believe. There's a few things in here that are you know, perhaps worth highlighting. First off, I took a pen and paper and started to make some quick notes just on the very first stanza, the first of five stanzas, and you know, quickly got myself to a dozen biblical references, meaning if called upon to cite chapter and verse against this very poem, I can easily do it. It's not difficult. It's not a struggle. But then I thought to myself, well, that would really be sending the wrong message, wouldn't it? It's enough to be aware of the truth, even if you can't necessarily provide all the footnotes. And for me, it's enough that I know that I can provide the footnotes. doesn't mean I have to do it. However, just to clarify a few things. In the violent wing of the anti-abortion movement, the first chapter in the book of Jeremiah, the prophecy, provides a key scripture verse for them. Uh, it refers to God knowing Jeremiah before Jeremiah was even conceived. Psalm 139 is also a powerful scripture, and I mean that in a good way, because I'm among those who believe that in God's mind, I existed before my earthly existence began, and that my relationship will follow after death. I don't want to get ahead into the part of this where I want to talk about what I do believe, but there's nothing wrong with the first chapter of Jeremiah. There's nothing wrong with Psalm 139. There is, however, something wrong with people using that scripture as justification to shoot doctors blockade clinics, um, blow up blow up people's cars, stuff like that. And that, unfortunately, is the usage that this verse uh, has been given. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, and in fact, my favorite section of the Bible, is probably the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in chapter 6, the very first part of it, Jesus talks very directly and very plainly about what he expects from us when it comes to prayer, what he expects from us when it comes to fasting, what he expects from us when it comes to almsgiving or giving to charity. And in each case, what Jesus says is, you need to do this in a way that doesn't draw attention to yourself. You need to do this in a way where you're not collecting the hypocritical reward of adulation. And um, the, the bottom line is that the way we handle prayer today, especially when you look at most of, uh, most of the public prayer movement, the public prayer movement has a lot to do with being seen publicly praying that somehow there's this notion that the most important thing is that people are aware that you're a Christian, and because they see you publicly praying, that is uh, somehow critically important to the movement of evangelism. And I think that that stands pretty much directly in opposition to what Jesus taught. The one mistake in the first stanza is the reference to the word pierced palms. Most people believe that the crucifixion of Jesus was essentially a nail driven through wrists, not palms. But, uh, you know, Tradition being what it is, plus it had a nice sort of uh, alliteration to it to go with uh, the two Ps, so I went there with pierced palm. God's verdict against Cain is one of the most interesting things, probably worth a show all to itself, at some point looking at the death penalty, because the Old Testament in particular has been used to justify pro-death penalty positions, and uh, parts of John's gospel have been used to justify anti-death penalty positions, and both of those are kind of misguided. There is a valid interpretation of John's gospel that suggests that Jesus wasn't really making a verdict about the death penalty, but was more specifically speaking against the vigilante spirit, calling out the idea that the current state of the law was that only the Romans could put someone to death. 
The more interesting of these two passages to me, though, is in Genesis chapter 4, where you're looking at the story of Cain and Abel. Because anyone who suggests that the notion of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth means that we must have a death penalty and must put lawbreakers to death completely misses the very obvious, to me glaringly obvious point in that when God dealt with Cain, he didn't impose a death penalty. So is this a do as I say, not as I do situation? Or has the Christian worldview always suggested that God speaks to us through his own example and his own character? In the second stanza, I kind of get a little uh, worked up in terms of the notion that we were very quick in the late 1990s to overlook President Bill Clinton's adultery and to focus instead on his bearing false witness against his neighbor or his testimony under oath. And a lot of that was simply self-serving. From a political perspective, it was easier to try to ring up impeachment charges against the president for for obstruction of justice or for perjury than it would have been to bring up charges against the president for having a consensual relationship with a legal adult uh, who was not his wife. So it was just a matter of, you know, kind of the uh, pragmatism kicking in and whatever was the best way for the president's enemies to attack him politically. But it is kind of noteworthy that from a Ten Commandments perspective, both adultery and bearing false witness are in there. And it was uh, amusing in a sort of a sad way to watch the politically active Christians pick and choose between those two rules as if one mattered and the other one did not. Maybe the most controversial section of this poem, at least the second stanza of the poem, is my notion that, um, that Jesus is a lot bigger than the narrow avenue. When Jesus talks about him being the narrow way, he's talking about himself being very specific. But I don't think that he necessarily means that he himself is not somehow God or that he himself is not somehow infinite. And so this notion that the only way to get to heaven is through Christ has been really confused and obfuscated, I think, by a lot of politically active Christians. And when we get to the different drummer segment today, I'll speak a little bit more specifically to that. The third stanza is as close as I'm going to get in today's show to offering any sort of creed or any sort of notion of what I believe. It's pretty obvious. You don't even need to read between the lines to see that, that when I'm going through an entire section of things that um, true believers understand, that I'm counting myself in that list. Including counting myself in that list is not just my view of the way the least of these passages should be interpreted. I've done an entire program around that idea but also the kind of prayer-in-school notion that I mentioned in the very first stanza. The idea that we aren't supposed to draw attention to ourselves, We aren't supposed to hold ourselves up as being superior to others. And somewhere deep down in the core of some of the prayer-in-school amendments is this idea that maybe, maybe if all the kids in school prayed, we would be a better nation as a result of that. When we're not necessarily teaching these kids what a prayer relationship is like, how Jesus taught prayer to be done doesn't come up in the conversation. And finally, between the last two stanzas, at the end of the fourth and the beginning of the fifth, is this notion that the righteousness of the Lord will reign on either side of the street. It is very consistent with biblical prophecy that uh, at the final moment of judgment, every knee will bow. That Jesus doesn't want us taking over the halls of government and presuming to reign in his stead. The book of Revelations is pretty clear that he's going to take care of himself, and he's going to take care of himself in a mighty impressive way. So 
So there's the poem, chapter and verse, written a good long 10 years ago. I now want to dive right into a different drummer, and this week's entry will not be a surprise to anyone. C.S. Lewis. I'd mentioned his nonfiction work before in previous episodes, and have no doubt that I will mention him again in the future. But I do draw a distinction between the fiction and nonfiction of C.S. Lewis. If you have a negative impression of Lewis based on his fantasy literature, then frankly, you're missing his most important work. Note how strongly I believe that there's a difference between the words popular and important. Beyond any doubt, Lewis's fantasy literature for children is his most popular, but I view his nonfiction work as by far the more important. This is not to dismiss The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and any of the other chronicles of Narnia. It's simply to say that for me personally, I'm citing C.S. Lewis as a different drummer because of the words that he spoke at a critical time in modern world history, words that he meant to be taken as fact and quite seriously. C.S. Lewis could make some claims that I can't make. His journey to Christianity included a pass through atheism. I spent a lot of time in my high school and college years thinking very deeply and thinking very seriously about these questions of religion, but at no point did I ever um, openly disbelieve. I'll take the time at some point to talk about my belief experiences, but I don't want to do that here, because C.S. Lewis addressed these issues not so much from, um, here's my personal experience of, of God, and therefore uh, I'm here to tell you that God is real. Instead, he took an intellectual course. If there's one book that I probably have read more than any other book, besides from perhaps the Bible, although it's impossible to talk about having read the entire Bible that many times, but if you, uh, if you set the Bible aside as being, first off, a collection of several books, and say, outside of that realm, certainly in the area of religious studies, but perhaps even overall, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis is one that has really meant a great deal to me. I like its almost conversational tone. More, I like the fact that that tone of voice in the writing is there because the chapters in the book were originally written as radio addresses to provide encouragement to England during World War II at the height of the, um, of the German bombings. So you know, he was given the opportunity to speak on the BBC and to speak intentionally about Christianity itself and, and religious belief. And he did so in a way that was both argumentative and compelling at the same time. There's just a couple of passages I want to cite from Mere Christianity, and then I'm going to expand my scope just ever so slightly so that this doesn't turn into a quote fest. But at the church that I attend, we've recently had a very heated set of discussions going on for a couple of years now about the mode of worship, whether we should continue to worship in a very traditional sort of Anglican way, or whether we should expand that, sort of throw that off a little bit, get um, very experimental, and go with a contemporary form of music uh, in the worship service and a contemporary approach to worship that we know for a fact resonates with the youth and with the college age people that we do ministry with kind of in ministry partnership out in the greater community. And uh, it really became a very heated, very divisive issue. And one of the things that I kind of held fast to, to get me through that time of conflict and to offer hopefully words of wisdom and encouragement to other people comes from the very preface to mere Christianity where the kind of the end of that introductory segment, C.S. Lewis discusses the different types of belief, the different denominations. And I think it's, it's probably right and appropriate that most people who are Christian or Protestant Christians deeply regret on some level how many different denominations there are. It doesn't uh, serve a good biblical purpose. It certainly can't make the Lord happy. But 
C.S. Lewis addresses that by saying, hey, you know what, when it comes to Christianity, you almost have to think of it as being a great hall. And in this great hall, there are many rooms. And the rooms are not decorated in the same way. They don't have the same kind of furnishings. And it's improper to speak of one room being better than another. They're merely different. And through that, it kind of led me to use the words of somebody much older and wiser than I am to say, listen, we can get through this conflict we're having. We can find the right answer, whether it be that we have two services, whether it be that we try to mix together into one very big service with kind of a, of a combination of all these elements, because we know from the guidance of somebody who lived through two world wars and spoke during the second of them that it's not a problem if two different people worship in completely different ways. It's really only a problem if one person tries to stop the other person from worshiping altogether. So I found those words to be very inspiring. In the poem, chapter and verse, I have a segment where I talk about the exclusive claim of Christ, that no one comes to the Father but by me. That is Jesus speaking in John chapter 14, verse 6. It is one of the most abused verses in all of Scripture, in my mind. And C.S. Lewis answers the question posed by that much better than I could. So first, let me talk about the question. What is the question? There are some who say that because of this verse, no one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus is saying that no one else in the history of the world who has ever lived, who is not a Christian, is going to heaven. And no one in the future history of the world who does not convert to Christianity, get baptized, take communion, uh, recite special prayers, is going to get into heaven. And C.S. Lewis openly challenges that idea. He openly challenges it in the book, Mere Christianity, speaking on behalf of Christianity from a theological perspective to England and later to the entire world. He says this, We do know that no person can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved by him. Perhaps my biggest issue from a chapter and verse perspective, my number one problem with the faith today, the number one thing I don't believe is that I don't believe that I have a pocket-sized God to worship. I don't believe that I've got something up on Jesus, that I've got some rules that were laid down in Scripture that he has to follow. I don't believe that I have a starring role to play in anybody else's salvation. I don't believe that there are any magic words. Here's what I believe instead. I believe that the Bible is accurate, that this verse is accurate, and that Jesus was telling the truth when he told his disciples, no one comes to the Father except by me. But let's listen again to C.S. Lewis's quote here. We do know that no one can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved by him. I disagree openly and aggressively with anyone who tells me that we know Mahatma Gandhi cannot have been saved, and that we know this because he was Hindu and not Christian. Uh-uh. That puts the handcuffs on Jesus Christ. Jesus, as God, can do whatever he wants to do. Can he save someone who didn't even know him? Absolutely. Will he? That's his question to answer. Not my question to answer. These are the kinds of questions that are raised, and I think answered quite well, in mere Christianity. I don't agree with all the concepts that C.S. Lewis introduced in those broadcasts and in that book, but it's a lot of fun engaging him in those ideas, even when I don't end up on the same page with him. That isn't the only nonfiction book. 
it's the one that I'm going to start with, but to offer just a couple of other quotes, just to kind of put the other ideas out there to say, hey, again, if you've never tried the nonfiction of C.S. Lewis, there's good reasons to go there. First off, they're relatively short. Second off, they're packed with ideas. And third, they raise questions that linger beyond the initial reading. In one of his other books, The uh, Great Divorce, uh, there's a quote that I want to share with you. I'm going to just read it and then I'll talk about it. There have been men before who got so interested in proving the existence of God that they came to care nothing for God himself, as if the good Lord had nothing to do but to exist. There have been some who were so preoccupied with spreading Christianity that they never gave a thought to Christ. This is, of course, the risk that you get when you take an intellectual approach to, to Christianity, to Jesus himself, to the gospel message. But it's also the problem that you get when the number one goal of perhaps televangelists and other you know, types of evangelists, politically active Christians, is counting the number of people that they have quote-unquote saved. True Christianity doesn't believe that men save men. It doesn't believe that humans save humans. True Christianity believes that it is Christ who saves. And it's very easy to see how people can get off that path. So that's a quote from his book, The Great Divorce. And you know what? I'm going to stop there because there's a great risk of this turning into a quote fest. C.S. Lewis has other great nonfiction books, The Problem of Pain being one, The Four Loves being another. At one point in, in his life, my son was asked to write a paper, a very short paper for junior high school about the meaning of love. I thought, wow, what a tough question to drop on like a seventh or eighth grader. And um, I don't know that he could have gotten through it had we not had access to this information from C.S. Lewis to say, you know, love is a pretty big topic. So rather than trying to give sort of a banal kind of definition or one that's based strictly in, in like human physical relationship, uh, he kind of wandered through in his answer all the types of love, which I think was kind of kind of the way to go. Now, uh, C.S. Lewis goes on for, for a lot more pages than just a one-page junior high school essay. But I think they, that was really a good idea. Let me use this concept of the types of love to branch over into one of the other things that I like about C.S. Lewis. I like the fact that C.S. Lewis is a mysterious figure. There's things about his wartime experience we don't necessarily know. There's things about his writing style, particularly in the Narnia series, that are quite confusing and that you know, his friend uh, J.R.R. Tolkien actually spoke against. Say you're, you shouldn't be mixing your metaphors, you shouldn't be mixing your mythologies the way you do. But perhaps the most interesting mystery about C.S. Lewis is relationship to Jane Moore. Uh, quoting just a, a little snippet from Wikipedia, says this, While being trained for the Army, Lewis shared a room with another cadet, Edward Courtney Francis Patty Moore. Maureen Moore, Patty's sister, claimed that the two of them made a mutual pact, this is during the First World War, that if either one of them died, the survivor would take care of both of their families. Patty was killed in action in 1918, and Lewis kept his promise. Patty had earlier introduced Lewis to his mother, Jane Kingmore, and the friendship between them quickly sprang up. Lewis, who was 18 years old when they met, and Jane, who was 45, started a friendship, and uh, his friendship with Mrs. Moore was particularly important to Lewis while he was recovering from his wounds in the hospital. His father didn't even visit C.S. Lewis during that time. The mystery here is whether the long relationship between the two was sexual, whether it was mother-son, whether it was friendship, or whether it was sexual. And the truth is, we don't know the answer to that question. Part of the reason that this resonates with me in a powerful way is, I'm not 100% sure that I even believe that the question is crucial in any way. Sometimes, I'm tempted to say that that particular question isn't even appropriate. 
the notion we have that a friendship spanning the that kind of decade or that span of time is inappropriate is in and of itself, in my opinion, wrong. The idea that we have that they couldn't have a platonic friendship because she was female and he was male and she was identified as being a handsome woman, which would have been the description that would have probably been offered up to about her at the time, uh, is also, in my mind, inappropriate and wrong. It may accurately describe what is the case often enough, perhaps more often than not, but it certainly doesn't provide all the answers. So when I've encountered moments in my life when I've had a strong personal relationship with somebody, and that relationship was male and female, but not sexual, it's been nice to know that there have been people who have walked parts of that path before. C.S. Lewis may or may not be one of them. I like to think that he is. Okay, so as you can see, for both personal and intellectual reasons, C.S. Lewis is a pretty important, different drummer for me. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. I'll be back next week with another perspective on religious belief. This time, instead of focusing on the things that I don't believe and the things that make me angry, I'm going to try my best to talk, at least somewhat more detailed than I have before, about the things that I actually do believe. Until then, thanks for listening.